0: Our next speaker today is uh, Kerry Muelstein. Uh, professor Muelstein is professor of ancient scripture in the faculty of religious education at BYU. He received his bachelor and master's degree from BYU and a PhD in Egyptology from UCLA. <clears throat> his first full-time appointment was a joint position in religion and history at BYU-Hawaii. <clears throat> Uh, he is uh, the director of the BYU Egypt Egyptian Project and has served as the vice president of the Society for the Study of Egyptian Antiquities. <clears throat> he and his wife, Julianne, are parents of six children and together have lived in Jerusalem uh, on several occasions while Professor Milstein taught there. An interesting uh, sidelight about uh, Kerry. Uh, he completed the final dive for his scuba certification <clears throat> so he's, he's, just, uh, he's a scuba diver by diving in the underwater ruins of Caesarea in Israel. Thank you. Professor Muelstein.
1: Thank you, I'm gonna try and get the screen up. While we do that, I wanna thank Dr. Ricks, who's one of my former teachers, for uh, inviting me to be here. And and I'm also um, mindful of the the fact that uh, when I was hired, well, maybe I'll put it this way, when uh, Kent Brown retired, uh, I was hired into that slot and it's uh, uh, a legacy I know I won't uh, ever live up to, but uh, that I hope not to tarnish. Um, too terribly. Uh, it's been good to be uh, to hear from him and it's good to be with all of you, although it's very bright. As I look up, it's hard to see everyone because the lights are so bright. Uh, and hopefully this is coming on soon. There we go. In any case, today uh, we'll talk about uh, Egyptian temples uh, and an aspect of Egyptian temples that is often not talked about but that I find uh, to be fascinating. We'll have to move through this very quickly. So as we talk about uh, temples in Egypt, let's just be clear, we're going to barely touch the surface even of the subject I'd like to talk about today, for, and that's for a number of reasons. Um, one, there are changes over time in, in a number of ways, whether we're going to talk about changes from going to uh, tents with uh, uh, skins and poles to, uh, to stone buildings, uh, or whether we're going to talk about temples that were Built literally over a period that lasts longer than a thousand years, uh, we have to remember that we are talking about a temple system that that, that lasted and evolved for over three thousand years, and uh, so anything we talk about will just uh, be a general. Uh, I will try and focus on one specific time period uh, for the most part, which is the the Ptolemaic era, or uh, when the Greeks were ruling Egypt, about 300 B.C. is uh, about when this would start. Uh, and, but most of what I will talk about is generally applicable to all of Egyptian history. Uh, and, uh, I should emphasize that even the rituals changed over time, uh, and, and the rituals we'll talk about today come, for the most part, from that, uh, that later time period. Um, we're also going to just barely touch on the idea that there's a difference between rituals for the living as opposed to the dead. Um, there are two types of, uh, well, at least two types of temples in Egypt. Um, one is for temples that are dedicated to gods, and then there are temples dedicated to uh, pharaohs in uh, the hereafter. Um, and most of what we'll talk about is for uh, the divine temples, but there are applications for the mortuary temples as well. So, again, this is uh, not, uh, we're just touching on the greatest of generalities as we're together today. Uh, Often, as we talk about sacred aspects of temples, we talk about sacred space, and that is is, uh, completely appropriate and very important. But what we often don't talk about is sacred time. Uh, And there are a few elements of sacred time we could talk about. So, for example, that uh, many rituals uh, probably all rituals were governed by the appropriate time to perform them, whether that be the daily sacrifices that Dr. Brown talked about uh, at the Temple of Herod, or all temples had daily sacrifices. There were festival sacrifices that took place at specific times that were uh, determined by the movements of stars and so on. Uh, that's an important aspect of sacred time, but that's actually not what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about the idea that in the temple, you were able to return to a specific time that in a way was really outside of time. Uh, A time that, uh, or a series of events that happened before time began, we could say. Um, In order to really understand that, we have to do just a brief background on Egyptian uh, creation theology. And that's also a complex uh, subject. There are a number of creation theologies, uh, and they may seem contradictory to us, but to the Egyptians they would have just been Uh, different ways of uh, uh, representing different aspects and and nuances and facets of what is an unexpressible and not fully understandable uh, event, and that's the creation. We'll focus on the Heliopolitan creation uh, theology, which really starts with the idea that before creation, everything was uh, chaotic material symbolized by watery chaos, and then someone uh, something was able to create itself that would uh, be named Atum, who created himself and then soon he had children who had children who had children and that gives the basis to uh, of, uh, nine created gods or goddesses known as the Aeneid and this is really in, in many ways represents the creation of the universe and the earth and Egypt uh, and uh, they're the core um, creator deities in this particular, particular creation theology. Uh, and it's important to understand that, to, to understand the time that they were trying to return back to, um, because in, in this period that we're talking about, they also had created man, and they lived with man. Mankind was able to enjoy communion with deity. They, they were not yet separated. Uh, the texts uh, speak about the time before mankind were cut off or separated from God, uh, and that's what this time is. Then something happened that disturbed this state of affairs. There are a number of ways it's described. In this particular creation theology, it's described as Seth killing his brother Osiris. Osiris had become king of, of uh, Egypt and the world and men, and Seth was jealous, and so he killed Osiris, and that disturbed uh, the way things were supposed to be. Osiris was dead, but his, his wife and sister, Isis, Uh, was able to revive him in a way, not really fully to life, but to an afterlife. She saves his afterlife, his ability to exist. Uh, He will then become, instead of the king of the living, he will become the dead king. And over time, that becomes the idea that he is is also the king of the dead. She also is able to revive him enough that together they are able to beget a child. And that child's name is Horus and Horus will become the new king on earth. It's a long story how that happens, but anyway, the new king on earth, and will represent uh, uh, mankind to the gods and gods to mankind. Um, but the, the, another side effect of all of this is that once this chaotic uh, sequence of events is uh, introduced, because that perfect order has been interrupted, mankind is no longer in the presence of the gods texts speak of the gods withdrawing themselves to the heavens and mankind is left here on earth with sometimes uh, interactions with Horus. And uh, that's, uh, that's the problem for them. While this is uh, an interesting uh, state, it's not necessarily the ideal state. Now, we have to ask ourselves, when did this happen? And the Egyptian phrase is septepi, the first time. Later, as they kind of get into creating it into a full-blown story, it will become Sepheru or the first day, but initially, it's a time. It's, it's a time before time began, a time before time is measured the way man measures, understands, and experiences time. That's a little hard to understand, but maybe we can explain it this way. If we were to say, when, when time as we know it begins, it's like a play, and when the curtain goes up on the play, Septepi has already happened so let me put it this way by the time we get to see what happens and understand creation as we know it the curtain has gone up and all of this story has already happened it happened before time and mankind is no longer with God and and we have all of this situation that's been created here um, and that is the state that we live in as men but it's not the state that they wanted uh, what they wanted was to be in the state where they were with deity as it was before with one important difference. They didn't want to erase Horus who came into existence as a part of all of this. And so it's not completely a desire to return to the time as it was, but to largely return to that time but in a different state. In uh, and, and other uh, temple systems it would be the idea of, of returning to that time but in a higher holier state. Uh, so they want to get back to this time but with a, a few key differences. Now, the question is then, how do you return to a time that is outside of time? Uh, How can you affect that? How can you make that happen? And there's really only one way for that to happen, and that is with ritual. Ritual is an activity that can both transcend space and time. It can have effect in, in this world, in the heavenly world, in the afterlife. It can have effect in time as we measure it, but in time before it was measured and began. And so ritual is the key, the way that you can recreate sacred time. And, of course, that will happen in a sacred space like the temple. Um, Now, there are two tasks for ritual in this regard, the idea of returning to sacred time. One will be to create or recreate order, that way that things were supposed to be. The Egyptian phrase is ma'at. And it will also be to destroy or hold at bay chaos, or the Egyptian word is, is isfet. Uh, and that's really what many of these rituals were aimed at doing, is to this twofold thing, to create order and destroy the chaos that was, was a threat to that order and disturb that order in the first place. Um, so we could spend uh, several hours talking about the recreative aspects of temples, but again, that's not really the, uh, the. Uh, oh, it's even harder to see you now, but but maybe that's more comfortable for me. I don't know. Anyway. Anyway. Um, uh maybe that's, uh, it's a topic for another day, but in any case, we have to at least touch on the idea that just the architecture of the temple itself was designed to recreate the world as, as a form of recreation. Um, the Shabaka stone has a text on it that appears to be a ritual drama of creation that's enacted in the temple as they, they enact uh, temple through ritual drama, Um, There were rituals that were designed to uphold or restore order or ma'at personified here by the goddess Ma'at. That's an important part of what they did with these rituals. Um, uh, One really important aspect of this recreation then would be the idea that you could regain the presence of deity which normally uh, we were shielded from but uh, certain priests with certain ritual preparations uh, could come to these doors that were sealed shut and uh, and with the the correct uh, preparations and and, uh, rituals could then open those doors and come into the presence of deity once again. Uh, That's really one of the the primary aims of uh, this recreative process. But today we're focusing on the destruction of chaos, but we need to understand the creation really to understand the destruction of chaos, and we'll talk in a moment about how they're tied together. We want to talk about the destruction of chaos. In some ways, again, this happened architecturally. As you approach a temple, you'll see these uh, lines. The the, the approach itself is lined by uh, figures or uh, uh, beasts that uh, are designed to scare away. We call it apotropaic, but to to scare away any uh, or prevent the approach of anything chaotic, anything that shouldn't be there, that doesn't belong there. Um, There were gates and doors that you had to go through. Um, and, uh, of course, these were always designed to only let in that which should go in and, and to keep chaos and chaotic elements out. Um, that was done to some degree. These pi- huge pylons had gates in them, and, and they had names. Uh, for exa- example, Bechnet, Vigilant. Others are the Mistress of Terror and all sorts of exciting things like this To uh, designed to keep that chaos at bay, prevent chaos from coming into that sacred space and thus from once again, disrupting sacred time. Um, and of course, there would be series of doors and pylons, each one as you go into more and more sacred space, uh, you have yet another barrier that would prevent uh, that which is chaotic from coming through. This is also reflected in the, the text for the afterlife, by the way, the same kind of idea, and you can see here depicted all sorts of gatekeepers with their knives and other things that will, will kill and, and beat away uh, anything that does not belong there. Of course on the walls you also have depictions of the pharaohs winning their battles and then gathering their enemies and smiting them. This is again a way of creating in perpetuity as these are carved onto the walls and still there today. um, In perpetuity they are holding all chaotic, destroying and holding all chaotic forces at bay. Um, So for the most part all these architectural features keep chaos out. The the smiting scene to some degree begins the process of actually destroying whatever chaos already exists, but there would have to be more that would would do this. So how do we destroy this chaos again? It's through ritual. Uh, Rituals must exist that can destroy this chaos both in this realm and in other realms and in this time and in things that transcend time. One of the primary, probably the primary, ritual for this is what we call execration rites. A series of rites that hold a very, very long history uh, in Egyptian uh, religious thought. Uh, We'll only be able to briefly touch on it today, but it is the, the key to understanding many of these things. So, the execration rites were designed to destroy anything that was rebellious or chaotic or dangerous. Um, so we ask, how often did these things happen? Well, there were daily execration rites, as there were daily sacrifices. As Dr. Brown talked about, there were daily execration rites. There were also special execration rites that were uh, parts of festivals. And, of course, uh, certain specific occasions could call forth the need for specific execration rites, both on a, a personal and on a, a global or, or at least Egyptian global level. Um What kinds of things did they use in these execration rites, we should ask ourselves? Well, they used uh, figurines, statues, and statuettes that could be made of any number of things. They could be made of clay. These could have uh, inscribed on them spells and the names of the the people and forces that were supposed to uh, be destroyed, although they were often blank as well. They could be made of clay or stone or wax or wood and probably other things that we're not aware of, but those are the things that we know about. Uh, They would often involve pots and bowls. You saw the the photo I had up earlier of a a smashed pot with writing on it that uh, was part of uh, Dr. Gee's um, hieroglyphic class, if I remember correctly, where they would uh, learn the execration spell and then uh, experience, well, I I don't know that they experienced the whole thing, but at least the smashing part. Um, So pots and bowls. Um, papyrus, uh, often it's supposed to be a new papyrus written with green ink and so on, but uh, papyrus that could uh, have things inscribed on it, Um, hairballs and again probably other things that haven't survived archaeologically and that aren't attested in the text, but these are at least the things that we know about. All of these were in one way or another destroyed. Um, Now who were the targets of the right? Who were they trying to destroy? Um, Personal enemies could be the targets of these rights political enemies, and that could be actual people or entire countries, um, military enemies, again, countries and armies and, and uh, specific individuals that f- represented a military threat, and of course, supernatural enemies were included in these rites. So for example, a spell that, that is designed uh, to be for the felling of the enemies of Ray, Horus, and Right. So this will include supernatural and uh, real life uh, political and military enemies. Uh, often, in fact, the rituals were designed to combine all kinds of enemies uh, so that you would get both political and supernatural, such as saying we, it will destroy every foe of Rey and every foe of Pharaoh. Um, and so th- these, uh, would get, these rituals are designed to have effect again in both this realm and other realms. Um, and they were often going to destroy them, whether they were dead or alive, because they still existed in, in the afterlife. And these were, this may be a little over the top for us in our political system, but, or at least our judicial system, but everyone who was even accused um, would be part of this rite uh, and their families. I didn't write the ritual, that's just how it went. So um, now we ask the question who could perform this ritual? Well, we don't really know. There are certainly uh, times and abilities for the common man to have this ritual performed. We don't know, did they. Uh, always employ a priest or did they feel that they could do this in their home Uh, for certain things themselves we really don't know that Um, but as far as formal rites uh, especially in the temples and other settings um, we know that priests performed these rituals Uh, and uh, just as an example we know one of the kinds of priests that would perform this is the prophet of men who massacres his enemies that's of particular interest to us because the a uh, priest who owned the papyrus that has facsimile One on it was a prophet of men who massacres his enemies. So he was someone who would perform these kinds of rituals. Um, we ask, where were these performed? Well, they could be for- performed in any number of places. We have many examples of them in cemeteries, examples of them at military installations, My guess would be that they happened in homes and other places, but uh, we really, that's archeologically and textually difficult to attest, Um, but the the ones we know the most about are those that happened in temples. Um, For example, at the Temple of Edfu, um, at a court that's surrounded by 32 columns, its name is the place in which Seftech is defeated, the enemy of Farakte, and so the name of this courtyard suggests that one of the main things that happened in the courtyard were these execration rites. Um, We know of them happening happening at the Temple of Mut at Karnak, and the Montu Temple, it probably happened uh, in every temple. Um, We know about it for certain at at many temples, and some, especially something like Montu, because the nature of the god worship there probably happened more frequently than in the other temples. Now we ask ourselves, what was done in these execration rites? Well, uh, many of them were aimed at uh, a character named Apophis, which you can read there. Apophis Pophis is a giant snake who is chaos, or Isfet incarnate. In many ways, he represents all chaotic elements in the universe, and so he would often be the primary target of these rituals, uh, and many of the rituals said that you would write his name in green ink on a new papyrus and so on. So let's just look at, we, we can't go into everything that happened, but we can look at a few specific examples. So um, we know of some rites that took place within a specific daily ritual. Um, one is the spell of spitting on Apophis and then the spell of trampling on Apophis and then the spell of taking a spear to Apophis and the spell of binding Apophis and the spell of taking the knife to Apophis. You can see they will leave nothing undone. Uh, the spell of setting fire to Apophis and the spell of smashing Apophis. All right, So uh, these are all separate rituals within the larger ritual. They are very serious about this. Um We know at other places, not in the specific one, I was just looking at it, but other uh, times and places, the ritual would include smashing pots, melting things, urinating on those things, decapitating various uh, figurines, burying these things, and so on. Uh, It it could take all sorts of forms, but these are forms that we know about. Now let's look at some language, specific language within one of those rituals. we had the list of rituals. We'll look at some things that happen within one of those rituals. Um, They were to bind the image uh, with a sinew of a red cow and then spit on him four times and trample on him with your left foot, then smite him with a spear, slaughter him with a knife, place him on the fire, spit on him in the fire many, many times, all right? So that's just one ritual that they would do as they were trying to destroy these chaotic elements. Now, I want to make it clear. These rituals destroyed the chaotic forces that perpetuated the introduction of chaos in Septepi. Right? They also destroyed things that were happening in this realm and, and, and this time, but part of the aim is to get rid of the very forces that had caused problems to begin with. Um, now, that brings us to an interesting tie that I've noticed as I've studied uh, these execration rituals is that very frequently there is a tie between the idea of creating and destroying. Um, one often has to accompany the other. You'll see this, for instance, in texts about the journey of the sun. You can see here um, the sun incarnate as it's journeying to be born again, and that's a creation motif. At the dawn of the day, the sun as it comes forth, that's recreation. That's a creation motif, but you'll notice below him is this terrible snake um, that is a danger to him? And you see Horus there spearing this snake to destroy him, because in the journey to create, you must destroy that which would prevent the perfect creation or recreation. So let's look at a couple of examples of this on a particular papyrus, Papyrus Bremner Rind, which is now housed in the British Museum. Um, We'll look at, at first of all, just the makeup of this papyrus in general. It has four specific, what we would call, books or, or different texts on it. One are the songs, or the songs of Isis and Nephthys. Uh, those are the two sisters of Osiris who saved his, his existence after he was killed, and then Isis was impregnated to uh, um, give birth to Horus, and so that becomes one of the primary symbols of this procreation becomes a symbol of creation or recreation. So procreation and recreation in this story are very significantly tied together. There's the ritual of bringing Sokar, which is also a a ritual with heavy uh, creation or recreation motifs. And then the next book is the book of overthrowing Apophis. And the the book of the names of Apophis, Who Shall Not Be. You have to put that on there. We want to make sure that we're noting he won't exist when this is done. Um, And so you see that on this papyrus all of these Texts are, are combined. They're not combined into the same ritual, but they seem to belong together. Let's look at some examples of creation and destruction being tied together in the songs of Isis and Nephthys. The greater portion of this text reviews uh, or is about the reviving of uh, Osiris so that Horus can be begotten. As I said, that's a, a procreative slash creative ritual. Um, let's look at specifically in column two, lines ten uh, or nine through ten. Where they ask for him to come, Asus and Ethus ask for Osiris to come and consort with us after the manner of a male so that the procreation can happen. And the next line is that Tebcha, a destructive or chaotic force, will go to his execution block. And then it speaks for a little while about the execution of Tebcha to get rid of the destructive force in in the midst of this creative process. As we continue this particular book in column three, which was on, on this picture, but I put up a different picture for you here anyway. Column 3, lines 25 through columns 4, line 7. They say, O Osiris, bull of the West, a phrase that, that uh, denotes his fertility and thus his procreative abilities. Come thou to the two widows. Again, talking about the, the procreation. And then the next thing it says is, they, the other gods of the Aeneid, ward off Seth for thee when Rey administers the punishment of the rebellious. Right. So he can come for this pro or, or creative act only... If they are warding off the destructive forces. If we continue further in this spell, Isis will sing uh, to Osiris, Ho, thou youth, come in peace. Ho, thou brother of mine, come thou to thine house without fear. And then it says just this the great rite of protection, unseen, unheard, seeming to indicate that at this point, a, a protective rite uh, that would then be a destructive rite is performed. If we go to one of the books that focus on, so those that's all from a book that focuses on creation. If we go to a book that focuses on destruction, um, we get a very long section that has all sorts of things you're supposed to do to get rid of Apophis, uh, kind of entertaining stuff. Um, and then it finishes with this. Apophis is brought to the flame, Neki is brought to the fire, and he shall be utterly non-existent, be annihilated, Apophis, and you, you say that four times, and this is to be recited over an image of Apophis made with a waxen body and drawn on a new sheet of papyrus to be put in the fire before Ray every day. And the next line says, The Book of Knowing the Creations of Ray and of felling Apophis. And it ties the idea of creation and destruction together again. And we see this repeated so often, again, this idea that creation and, and destruction must be tied together. And the question is, why? And, and the answer really is that you have to overcome the disturbance so, that you can reachieve that pristine state where God and man are reunited. Um, but of course, not the original pristine state, a pristine state that's even better, uh, that in this case has Horus with it, but in other systems just better in a number of ways. So, as I said, this includes then that reunion with deity. So, that the idea is that when chaos is destroyed and order is upheld, you can go through the doors, and in the temples, you are briefly reunited with the presence of deity, although we know from the, the funerary literature that they hoped that in the afterlife that would be more than a brief, but a, a full and permanent reunion. Thank you very much. I, I think we have time for a few questions, and now I can even see you to know if you're asking questions. So. Yes, and I think they're probably bringing a, a mic somewhere. but.
0: So, so as I... As I listen to your presentation, and I'm getting echoes of dualism here—creation, destruction—and then I start to think about this uh, almost to in the uh, uh, scapegoat right a little bit. There's something that kind of is analogous to to what I'm hearing here. And, and so, uh, are you seeing things like that? What what kind of observations yeah. are you seeing from
1: that? Th- this. This pairing is not unique to Egyptian uh, temple systems. I think we have more documentation of it from Egyptian temple systems than anywhere else. But I think you're right, and you point out a very interesting parallel. In the ritual in which Israel is symbolically reunited for that brief moment with deity, part of that is that the the, uh, bad or destructive forces of Israel must be carried away. And and over time, we know the tradition is that they drive the scapegoat off a cliff so that it dies and can't come back to them, right? And so it really is a kind of an execration rite uh, that's associated with the ability to be reunited with deity. And so I I do think that you see that idea in many places. So uh, we'll we'll go here. And I thought I saw a question over here, but maybe I was wrong. Okay. In
0: Genesis, in King James Version, we have uh, the son of the woman bruising the serpent's head. In the Latin Vulgate, we have uh, the the woman crushing the serpent's head. So, of course, we've got Mary in the Catholic version and in the Protestant version. We have Christ. I don't know which one is that. Greg, probably.
1: Probably both. (laughs) But anyway, so the translation of
0: crushing the serpent's head is probably more accurate than bruising the serpent's head.
1: Uh, and, and you just make a comment or I think the Hebrew is stronger than the good and and uh, again I would note then that what you have is this this strong tradition in a number of cultures that snakes while they often can represent good and, and sometimes snakes protect the sun in the Egyptian thought from the the bad snake so you get good and bad snakes just like you have the snake on the pole for Israelite tradition yet uh, the, in the Garden of Eden story it is the snake that represents that chaos that that drives man and and uh, uh, God apart, and so I think you're right. There's an important similarity there, and the expressed is that idea that you have to destroy the the snake. So you're right. Um, are
0: there any groups or any people that um, try to that continue these rituals, and um, if um, they, if not, uh, you know, like try to revive them? And, uh, these are probably ancient, but. If not, when
1: did they end? Great question. So, I mean, I can't say that there aren't any because you, there are always some weird group somewhere who tries to revive something Egyptian in very strange ways. So probably someone somewhere does it. But um, but Egyptian religion itself really dies out as Christianity comes into to Egypt. And so you're going to see these rituals Um, in a way ending in, say, third or fourth century. But what you find is that they find just different ways that they're continued. So that even today, after the inhabitants of Egypt have gone through from, from uh, this uh, early Egyptian religion to Christian to Muslim religion, there are still traditions today, for example, at, at New Year's, uh, people will, and I think they have no idea where these traditions come from, but there's a tradition that they, they take some of their uh, plates and, and bowls and throw them out the window and break them as a way of starting the new year. And they probably think of this as just kind of a celebration thing, but it, it really you can trace this back several thousand years. So there are manifestations of them, and who knows, there's probably some weird group somewhere that's really trying to be Egyptian, I don't know Yeah, I I haven't looked into whether that's connected or not, her question is whether, you know, uh, at weddings and so on, smashing um, bottles and glasses Uh, I would have to look into whether that's connected or not, I don't know, it's a good question, so I think we have time for uh, just one more question Yes sir
0: so uh, what I found really interesting about this was to view, I guess, temple ritual, not from the standpoint of purity and impurity, but from the standpoint of order and chaos. Um, do you find, because from a Judeo-Christian standpoint, that's really how we would view temple rituals, did the Egyptians have a concept of like purity and impurity that was at the level of how they viewed order and chaos? Huh? <laughs>
1: Uh, uh, Well, so whether they're synonymous or not, I'll get to in just a second. They absolutely have an idea of purity and impurity, and and, uh, Dr. Gee, who you'll hear from later today, has uh, written about this extensively, and his his dissertation was on this topic. Um, And so if I don't say yes, he will throw something at me. But I I happen to agree with him. It's it's hugely important. Now, my, my Egyptology colleagues are probably laughing because I tend to see almost everything in Egyptian religion connected in one way to another, to this idea of, of uh, order and chaos and the, the competition between the two. And so uh, I will say this, and he'll have his chance later to rebut me, Dr. Gee, will, but I, in my view, ritual purity is a way of trying to establish the correct order. Um, and, and in a way, of getting rid of, of disorder, by, by the whether it be washing or anointing and other things that they do. Um, it's a way of getting rid of that which you shouldn't have and creating the state that you should have, which to me always speaks of destroying chaos, upholding order. I may be prone to see that everywhere. Uh, and so maybe, uh, maybe I'm just crazy on that. But I think that, that, that ritual purity is a way of doing this same thing. So thank you very much.